First Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 is where we're going to spend our time. And uh, while you're turning there and get settled, I'm going to pray. Lord, uh, it is not unlike any other Sunday that we need you. We need God, our Holy Spirit, uh, to lead us into truth this morning. And as we study this passage, would you open our hearts, open our ears, that our lives will be impacted by the beauty of your gospel. Uh, Lord, this is a word for people who are oppressed, for people who are hurting, for people who come in today hard-pressed on every side by chaos and crisis. So, Lord, lift their hearts today as they set their eyes on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Uh, at a meeting of the American Psychological Association, Jack Lipton, a psychologist at Union College, and a guy named Scott Bullion, a graduate student at Columbia University, presented their findings on how members of the various sections of 11 major symphony orchestras perceived each other. So they did a study of all these orchestras. How do the different sections perceive each other? The percussionists were viewed as insensitive, unintelligent, hard of hearing, yet fun-loving. Not our gym this morning, but other percussionists were viewed that way. Um, string players were seen as arrogant, stuffy, and non-athletic. That's really funny when one band member calls another non-athletic. The orchestra members uh, overwhelmingly chose the word loud as the primary adjective to describe the brass players. Woodwind players seemed to be held in the highest esteem, described as quiet and meticulous, although a bit egotistical. So with such widely divergent personalities... And perceptions, how could an orchestra ever come together to make such wonderful music? And the answer is simple. Regardless of how those musicians viewed each other, they subordinate their feelings and their biases to the leadership of the conductor. And under the guidance of the conductor, that orchestra plays beautiful music. So how do we, as a group of people who are sometimes egotistical or insensitive or non-athletic or very athletic or loud, <laughs> it's a joke, uh, or loud or hard of hearing or meticulous or whatever, how is it that all of us get along? Well, th this is what the gospel does among us. The gospel makes from many one. And this is no small thing. Today we're going to use words like radical and supernatural and subversive and shocking to describe the incredible unifying work of Jesus Christ. Now here at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we are at the end of a distinct section of this letter. So let me just recap a little bit where we've been so you understand a little better about where we are. This section of the letter starts back in chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 2, one distinct unit inside this letter called 1 Timothy. And in this unit, 5.1 to 6.2, Paul gives instructions to various groups of people in the church for how to behave, how to live, how to act in the church of Jesus Christ as his followers. So you remember verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, 
We looked at it a couple weeks ago. It starts out with Paul telling Timothy not to rebuke an older man harshly, but to exhort him, encourage him as your father, and younger men as your brother, and older women as your mother, and younger women as your sisters in all purity. So Paul lays this family framework on top of the church to give us a way of understanding how we relate to each other, not as spectators, we're not customers or consumers, this, this is family. This is how Paul thinks of the church, how we're to think of it also. So he lays that family framework down, and then he gives instructions for how to care for the most vulnerable among us, namely widows. Then he gives instructions for the care and feeding of church leadership, our elders. And then now here in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul talks about a tinderbox situation between slaves and masters. I want you to imagine, if you can, that you are a first century slave in the Roman Empire. You hear the gospel, somehow someone shares the gospel with you, and you become a Christian. Now you are free in Christ, and you're part of a group that does not practice favoritism. You're part of a group where the social structures are leveled. And so the slave who believes in Christ has the same freedom as the wealthy person who believes in Christ. And once a week, you're a part of that gathering. You have this whole other group of people that you belong to, but then you return home from that gathering to a family that owns you and a family that dictates your day-to-day activities. How would you respond? As a believing slave, how would you respond? It seems that some Christian slaves in Ephesus were acting in destructive ways towards their masters because of the experience of the gospel. The potential for damage here was huge. And so Paul turns his attention to his fellow believers in order to show them how the gospel applies to their behavior even while still a slave. I have two goals today in preaching this passage. One is a broad goal. The other is a very narrow goal. The broad goal is this. I want us to deal briefly, all too briefly, with how the gospel dismantles slavery and all oppressive systems of mankind. That's the broad goal. The gospel does something to tyranny. It destroys it. Second goal, this narrow goal, is applying these verses to our lives. I think you will be surprised at how incredibly applicable these two verses are to your life. Broad goal, the gospel destroys slavery. Narrow goal, the gospel guides us under every form of oppression. So in order to hear Paul clearly this morning, we're going to look at these two verses through a microscope. And because I am a super good Baptist preacher, we're not going to go with three points. We're going to go with five ways the gospel empowers the oppressed. Five ways the gospel empowers the oppressed. VBS doesn't start till tomorrow morning. We've got plenty of time. Five ways the gospel empowers the oppressed. If you come in here beat up today, hard-pressed on every side, under some sort of tyranny of any kind, this word is for you. Follow along with me as I read 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 1. All who are under the yoke as slaves 
should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect, so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Let me show you five ways the gospel empowers the oppressed. Taking notes, I hope you are. First of all, the gospel condemns every tyrannical system. How does the gospel empower those under oppression? It condemns every tyrannical system. Paul opens his section by identifying his audience. Who's he speaking to? He says, I'm speaking to all who are under the yoke as slaves. Who are these slaves? These slaves are men and women in the church at Ephesus who are Christians. They're part of the church family. They're not slaves in the church to do the serving of the other people. They're there as equal members through their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I hope you spent some time this past week with the sermon study guide. If you didn't, there's still several available around the church. I would encourage you to grab one on your way out this morning or download it from the website because there's some context and some history in that guide that could really, really help your understanding of this passage. But it's important for us to understand that slavery in first century Rome was very different from slavery in early America. A few differences between the two. One, uh, slavery in the Roman Empire was not race-based as it was in America. In America, you would not have found a white person in slavery. But in the Roman Empire, uh, people of all ethnicities could be held in slavery as it was more of a financial structure than it was an ethnic structure. Another big difference between the two was that under uh, the Roman slavery, slaves were often educated and they held status within their homes. They were generally valued by their owners. That's not to say that all slaves in the Roman Empire had access to these things or lived a genteel life, far from it. But those opportunities were present and were common practice within Roman society. And that was certainly not the case in American slavery. Slaves in America were a source of labor. And eventually in the southern colonies, they became essential for the economy. Another massive difference between Roman Empire slavery and American slavery, was that Roman slaves had the ability to obtain their freedom. It was not intended to be an arrangement that lasted forever. How many actually attained their freedom, it's hard to say. Uh, But the opportunity was still there for them. Almost a third of the people living in first century Roman Empire society were slaves. That slavery was a deeply entrenched cultural institution Slavery in the Roman Empire was a fact of life. Most people couldn't imagine a society that did not have slaves. Some people spoke out against the mistreatment of slaves, and there were even slave rebellions. But there was never an abolitionist movement in the Roman Empire. Slave rebellions were about the treatment of slaves, the conditions that slaves lived and worked in. It was not about abolishing the system altogether. In light of the common nature of Roman Empire slavery, the earliest Christian congregations took seriously the apostles' teachings on equality and their warnings against favoritism. 
And so with the help of the Holy Spirit, they applied these principles even though it was very much against the prevailing culture. The Christian church was and always has been an oasis of equality and the value of all mankind in every kind of culture and structure that props up tyranny against those who bear the image of God. The church, marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ, has always looked and always lived different. While it's true that Roman slavery was in some ways better than slavery in America, it was still an abomination and abuse was rampant. So when Paul introduces the idea, he calls it a yoke. In other words, the slave is like an ox that is bearing this burden. It's a subhuman system, no matter the century or the context in which it's practiced. So here's where you and I, as readers with 21st century minds, would ask this question. Why didn't Paul just come right out and condemn slavery? When we read this with our cultural mindset, there's a part of it that makes us feel uncomfortable, almost as if Paul is endorsing slavery and telling slaves to submit themselves to further and further abuse. Why didn't he just come right out and condemn it? Well, you you have to remember the focus of Paul's letter. When he writes this letter, he says it clearly, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we reference it almost every Sunday. He is speaking to the church about godliness. This is how church lives. This is how the people of Christ live together and live in and around their community. That's Paul's focus. This is not a treatise on slavery. This is a treatise on Christian living and how it applies to everyone in the church. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to us. If we think about this through Paul's cultural lens, we would expect him to address church leadership, situation with widows, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, and slaves and masters. If Paul does not address this this group, then his letter is incomplete. He's left an entire segment of the church untouched by his instruction. So does this mean that Paul endorses slavery? Not even close. Paul writes in the tension between a gospel which sets men free and a culture that sees slavery as a normal part of everyday life. So imagine you are tasked today with the uh, job of writing a letter of encouragement to Christians in North Korea. And you write a letter filled with encouragement and courage and grace and love. But in your letter, you do not come out and denounce the leadership of that country. Does that mean you, by default, endorse that leadership? Absolutely not. And neither does Paul endorse slavery in this passage or any passage where he speaks to slaves and masters. The body of Paul's work is in line with the rest of Scripture, which destroys slavery outright. There are two massive biblical truths that completely sever slavery at the root. The first is the creation account, which tells us that all humans are created equally in the image of God. The second biblical truth is the gospel, which tells us that God has overcome racial, social, and religious divisions at the cross. He's creating for himself a people from every tribe, language, tongue, and nation. 
And he's bringing those people together in perfect harmony. Creation is essential because it reveals God's original intent for humanity. He didn't create orders of value when he created human human beings. He just creates people in his image. And the gospel is essential because it reveals the ultimate trajectory of God's redemptive work. When we stand before the throne of God and we sing in our native tongues his praise for all eternity, it's as brothers and sisters together bearing the image of God, glorifying the one who has made us forever and ever. So the gospel subverts every social system that devalues anyone made in the image of God. Slavery, communism, terrorism, racism in every degree and form, human trafficking, prostitution, pornography, and more. The gospel abominates every yoke of mankind. Someone say amen to that. Second way the gospel empowers the oppressed is the gospel dictates our response to our oppressors. The gospel says something about the system. The gospel also says something to the one who suffers within the system. Verse 1, Paul says, All who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect. So again, who is Paul's audience in these two verses? Well, it's Christians who are slaves, but in that there are two subgroups. Verse 1 is written for Christian slaves who have non-believing masters. Verse 2 is for Christian slaves who have believing masters. And Paul tells those Christians, verse 1, Christians with non-believing masters He tells them to regard their own masters as worthy of all respect. So what does that mean? In what way should Christians regard their own masters as worthy of all respect? Well, quite simply, they are to honor their masters through submission and obedience in carrying out their assigned duties, doing their work as they're told to do it and expected to do it without questioning, without laziness, without revolt. For modern readers, this flies in the face of our values. We live in a land of outrage, and and we want Paul's values to align with ours. We want Paul to tell slaves to rise up and rebel, to overthrow their masters, destroy them, let nothing impede your freedom. But the problem with our view is that it's not the view of Christ. Paul is owned by a crucified, humiliated, denigrated Savior. And that's what he gives to the church. So I want you to listen to what Jesus taught. Matthew 5, 38. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And as for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you 
so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You've heard what Jesus taught. Now I want you to listen to how Jesus died. Mark 15, Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. Regard your own masters as worthy of all respect. Here we're reminded of the words and the death of Jesus. Paul teaches us to follow Jesus and not our rage. Paul teaches us to trust the perfect justice of Jesus over the sinful whims of our hearts. And if Paul expects slaves to follow Jesus in their, impre- in the, in their oppression, what do you think he expects of us in our various situations? Right? Our circumstances never dictate our responses. Rather, the gospel does. So your job may stink, and the diagnosis may not be fair. The person driving in front of you may be a meathead. Your boss may be a jerk. Your neighbor might be a jerk. Your spouse might be a jerk. But regardless, regard the other person as worthy of all respect. This is the way of the cross. Third way, the gospel empowers the oppressed is the gospel motivates a missionary response. The gospel motivates a missionary response. So the gospel dictates our behavior. It it also is motivation for us in the way we respond when we find ourselves under oppression or hardship of any kind. So still in verse 1, here at the very end of verse 1, Paul identifies a reason, a motivation, as to why we would regard our masters with all respect. Here it is. All who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Paul makes it clear to these slaves that in their insubordination or in their obstinance, they could do real damage to the church's witness in two different ways. One, they could smear the name or the reputation of God. Two, they could destroy the credibility of the gospel. Regard your own masters as worthy of all respect so that God's name and his teaching, the gospel, will not be blasphemed. Why does the reputation of the church matter so much? Why does the reputation of God and his gospel, why is that such a big deal? Well, the big deal is the spread of the gospel among unsaved peoples. That's the big deal. The reputation of the church has missionary implications about it. 
even the souls of slave-owning masters matter. So how can you expect unbelieving masters and others in the home and those outside the home to be one to Jesus if they've only experienced the gospel as a self-serving, destructive force? Now what's true for Christian slaves is true for all of us in our hardship. Your point of greatest difficulty is a platform for your loudest witness. Your point of greatest difficulty is your platform for your loudest witness. Let me give you an example from Paul's life which shows this to be true. Paul wrote Philippians. He wrote to the church at Philippi this letter from a Roman jail cell. And at the end of the letter, and I mean the very end, he is giving his final greetings. And he writes this in Philippians 4.22. He says to the church at Philippi from his prison cell, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Who is Caesar? There's only one. This was not a commonplace name. Caesar is a title, not a name. If you named your kid Caesar, it'd be like naming him county commissioner today. Caesar is one. And Paul says, all the saints who are with me send their greetings. And then he drops this bomb in there, even those from Caesar's household. So here's Paul under an unjust imprisonment and still the gospel is potent to save his prison guards and others who are around him. The gospel is so subversive and it has missionary implications when we walk in the way of Christ, whether we are in a Roman jail or we are under Roman slavery or we face a hardship this day of any kind. Do not forget your witness, Christian. Sometimes we pray, God, get me out of this. Get me out of this. Get me out of this. Let us pray instead. God, don't take me away until your will is accomplished in my suffering. Let me honor God's name and his teaching for the sake of the unsaved. Paul calls these Christian slaves to a level of maturity in the gospel that you and I must aspire to. For these Christian slaves, it wasn't time to revolt. It was time to be missionaries. It was time to use their greatest difficulty as the platform for their loudest witness. So it is for us. Fourth way the gospel empowers the oppressed. The gospel creates a scandalous new family creates a scandalous new family. The gospel takes down the system, dictates our response, motivates our witness, and then it creates this scandalous new family. On to verse 2. Paul speaks to Christian slaves who have Christian masters. Let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers. In the church of Jesus Christ, Every old social structure is done away with. So a a relationship that once was owner and property is now brother and brother, brother and sister, sister and sister. By faith in Jesus Christ, 
Every way we categorized each other, thought of each other, the way culture implemented value on people, all that garbage is done away with. It's burned up. And in its place is this family where everyone in the image of God holds supreme value. There's one really incredible example of this also from Paul's writings. He deals with the issue of slavery a lot in his letters, far more than you may realize. And his letter to Philemon is all about this issue. Philemon was a Christian and he was a slave owner. He had a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus ran away. In his running, Onesimus comes into contact with the gospel and he's a believer. He becomes a Christian. And somehow in his running, he meets Paul. Maybe he meets Paul and that's the impetus for the gospel. But somehow Paul has a relationship with this runaway slave and it just so happens he has a relationship with the runaway slave's former master back in Colossae. And so when Paul writes to Philemon, he's preparing Philemon to receive Onesimus back. And here's how he instructs Philemon. He says, receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. Welcome him as you would me. Philemon is no longer Onesimus' master. He is his brother. And that's a scandalous family. It flies in the face of every cultural value, every way our systems judge each of us and other people. He puts a family in place of this system. You know what's more scandalous than slave and master becoming brother and brother? What's more scandalous is what the writer of Hebrews chapter 2 tells us is that our Savior and the one, those he saves are also brothers and sisters to one another. That's a scandalous family. Slave and master, big deal. Savior and saved, huge. So the children of God are radically, supernaturally united to one another. The gospel makes one people from every social status, every economic status, every nation, every tribe, every language. Slave and master, Jew and Gentile, male and female, Americans and Kuwaitis and Pakistanis and Emiratis and Iranians and Ghanaians and Chinese and Taiwanese and Nigerians and Kenyans and Ugandans and more. We belong to a global and beautiful Christian family. The gospel creates this scandalous new family. Fifth and final way the gospel empowers the oppressed is the gospel inverts all worldly power structures. It inverts, turns on its head, every worldly power structure. The gospel's taking down the system, dictates our response, motivates our missionary response, and it creates a new family, and here it turns systems upside down. So Paul ends by telling Christian slaves to serve their Christian masters even better since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Now, sometimes Paul is not so clear with his pronouns. The theys and theirs need a little bit of work to make sense of. So let me reread this, substituting 
specific people for the pronouns, I think this makes a lot more sense for us in our study. In verse 2, he says, Christian slaves serve your Christian masters even better since those Christian masters who benefit from their Christian slaves' service are believers and dearly loved. So Christian masters are your brothers in faith who are dearly loved. Therefore, serve them better. Now, there's a really interesting concept woven into Paul's instructions here. Paul states that Christian masters benefit from the service of their slaves. And so in this scenario, the master who's receiving benefit from the slave, here's the question, who is the benefactor? Who's the one doing the good thing, benefiting the other? The benefactor is the slave. And who is the one receiving the benefit? The master is the one receiving the benefit. And you want to talk about scandal. This is a big deal. In first century Rome, there was a well-defined system of benefaction or patronage. And I want to show you the Oxford Dictionary's definition of patronage so that you can get a sense of, of what this cultural setup is. Patronage is a form of exchange that is personal and involves someone with a superior status giving something to those with inferior status, leaving the inferior party owing honor and loyalty to the superior party. So in the normal relationship between master and slave, who would you call the benefactor? Well, the benefactor would be the master in the normal order of things. He has work to give, a livelihood to give, an education to give. He's the one that does well, and that's a, status, a, a place of pride, a place of power over the other person. I get to do well for you. But Jesus messes all of that up. With the gospel in play, the slave is the benefactor to the master, who in turn should respond with honor and loyalty to the slave. Once upon a time, Jesus' disciples were having a fight with each other over who was the greatest among them. And Jesus shut them up and told them this. In Mark chapter 10, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what Paul describes in verse 2, it's not only for slaves and masters, is it? It's for all Christians in relationship with each other. Christianity has always been marked by a radical other-mindedness. It's an other-mindedness that is informed by the death of Jesus Christ for those he came to save. His death and resurrection show us how we treat others around us, Christian and non-Christian alike. So you may have looked at these two verses at the beginning this morning and thought to yourself, oh, this doesn't really apply to me, never been a slave. But to the contrary, their relevance does not depend on you having been a slave, 
but on you being a follower of Jesus Christ. This is not some special set of instructions for a distinct group in the church that's now extinct except in some horrible parts of planet Earth. This is for this church today, everyone in this room who follows Jesus Christ. So this means that even under the most extreme oppression, you have the omnipotent God on your side. You have a power that is subversive, that turns all of this on its head. That when the situation you're in is beyond your control, it feels unfair, it is unfair, it is unjust, still, the God of armies is on your side. And he subverts, inverts every tyrannical system of mankind. So this morning, uh, we've considered this passage from a broad view in a narrow view. What's the broad view? The broad perspective tells us that the gospel utterly destroys every system of oppression. The narrow perspective is our own personal application. It's the perspective that tells us that what Paul says to Christian slaves, he says to all believers, our resurrected Savior is our power and our example for enduring suffering and hardship in a way that brings glory to God and the gospel. One day, every tyrannical system of man will be brought under the violent and eternal judgment of God. And one day, every sinful yoke will be broken forever. As for this day, we live as free men and free women through faith in Jesus Christ. No matter our hardship, we live in the unspeakable comfort of Jesus who says to us all, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray together. Father, not everyone in this room is free. Some in this room are bound by spiritual shackles. And they are held by an evil ruler who would want to blind their eyes and deafen their ears to the good news you have for them. God, I pray this morning that you would amplify your word in their heart, that they would hear, they would believe, and they would turn to Jesus Christ for their salvation. We're grateful for the the civil freedoms that we have, but we need this greater freedom above all else. Lord God, would you do a saving work in their hearts today? They came in here beat up, disillusioned, struggling, asking questions. Let them find their answers in you, that they would trust in Jesus Christ who came to us, God in the flesh, who died on the cross for our sin and rose again from the dead, which means every promise in him is true. Let them put their faith in Jesus who died for them, that they might be forgiven and given new life and given true freedom. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are facing oppressions and hardships of all kind. I don't use that word lightly. I know it looks different in other parts of the world. But that burden is no lighter for us here. So Lord, I ask that you would lead us in the way of the cross, 
in a radical other-mindedness with a missionary motivation that we would trust you step by step in the situation that we've been placed in. So Lord, give us your strength. Give us your comfort. Give us your joy. As we set our hearts and our minds on you, the victor over every evil, ever, over every brokenness. God, in the parts of the world where slavery still abounds, would you bring a violent and quick end to that system and empower the countries of this world and the leaders of this world to act on behalf of those who have lost personhood to those who hold guns and power over them. You ought to pray for those in our own country who suffer under a different kind of slavery, sex trafficking. Lord, bring freedom. Empower our authorities to end this horror. And Lord, set these women and boys free from these things that they suffer and endure. And God, set our eyes on heaven. Let us as a church walk in the awareness of that final day when everything is set right. But in this moment, let us be found trusting you on the mountaintop and in the valley as you guide us in them all. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.